one of the benefits of having this conversation, being able to kind of be my own editor, be my own colleague and newsroom, even on the days when it gets a little lonely, is being able to pick the the stories that I feel like are important and worth covering. And the topic that I want to get into is is extremely difficult, as you will no doubt uh, be aware very quickly. Uh, but it's also very important, and it happens to deal with something that I've discussed really briefly on this conversation, which is that you know my wife and I are expecting really soon. We found out some information while we were uh, out in California a few few days ago that that devastated us, and when we found it out, it was uh, hearing it was difficult, but uh, the telling of it was even more difficult. And to talk about it a little bit more. Uh, I want to bring in a, a dear friend of mine and someone who's gone through something that's extremely difficult, but uh, I'm, I'm really glad that she's able to have this conversation with me. Meredith Shiner is a former and longtime congressional reporter, and she is the author of a recent piece in the Daily Beast, an open letter to Kevin McCarthy. For House Republicans, a baby born at 23 weeks is a political prop. For me, it was life. Meredith, thank you for spending some time with me on At the Table. Well, Jared, thank you for having me. And what you did not mention was that we used to spend a lot of time together on the radio. We laughed a lot. Uh, And what I want to tell you up front is what I've been telling myself for the past few weeks, which is that it's totally okay to feel multiple emotions simultaneously. So I hope that by the end of this conversation, I get a big old belly laugh out of you because it means I still got it. (laughs) You absolutely have that. And I, and I, I just want people to understand completely. One of the benefits here is that I get to take off some of the vestments of journalism. And I know that you have enjoyed some of the benefits of removing those those vestments as well. I do not have to be objective here. I can tell people that I love you dearly. I love your husband dearly. I grieved when I heard about this information. And I, not just because obviously my wife and I are dealing with this, but also because I was looking forward to having this this child in my life and and you know not not even a fraction of what you were but but I knew that 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 your kid and and my kid would would be friends and I look forward to the future of that. So I am by no means objective here but the piece that you've written is extremely important and I want people to and and I will link that in the episode description but I am very glad that I do not have to even attempt that level of professional nonsense, because uh, I, I actually do not think it would be served here. So let's talk about the piece that you wrote. And I'll, I'll let you actually talk about it, because I want you to let, let me start the way you start your piece, which again was an open letter to the House Republican leader, Kevin McCarthy. Meredith, I'm sorry we have to meet like this. Why was this a letter you felt you had to write? Well, one, I'm sorry, too. Uh, two, uh, you just gave me a really generous introduction. So I'd like to say that uh, I love you, too. Um, and I think that it's really interesting that you talk about this concept of objectivity. I think that uh, when it comes to DC reporting and when it comes to some of the conversations around legislation or around political debate, and one of the points that I make later in the piece, and we'll sort of step back and talk a little bit more about the piece holistically and why I'm unfortunately having this conversation with you, I think this pursuit of objectivity has been really distorted and it takes the humanity out of our conversations. I think that mainstream reporters have become so nervous or anxious that however they might report on legislation or again political debates could be construed as taking one side or another when one side happens to be pro-science, for example, that reporters can oftentimes resort to sort of a sports-like point-scoring approach to covering politics. And I think the reason I felt it was so important to write this piece was because humans lived outside the DC bubble. Like we can talk all day about something being a messaging bill that appeals to a base and it might be designed to never pass into law, but that still has real world implications because humans live in the real world. And so what I really wanted to do was humanize the conversation around this issue. And the issue we're talking about today is a piece of legislation in the house called the Born Alive Survivors Protection Act. 
Born Alive Abortion Survivors Protection Act. Sorry, it's a little bit easy to forget a word because what they're describing is not a real clinical term or really a situation that's faced by any women in this country. So to start, um, 99% of abortion in this country happens between the before the 21st week of gestation. Um, at the time that I went into labor and I went into preterm labor, labor, which is what the piece was about, I was 22 weeks, six days pregnant. Um, and so I was far enough along in this pregnancy that I had quite the big belly uh, and I was starting to feel quite a few kicks, um, not forcefully because this was still like a tiny, tiny thing inside of me, but we'll get to that in a second, but enough to feel pregnant and for everyone to know around me to know that I was pregnant. Obviously, I had had that conversation with you about being pregnant and I had had it as is standard operating procedure in America right now um, after I had gone through the first trimester. And one of the things that I had talked about when I was pregnant and have continued to talk about now is because the conversation around loss has become so stigmatized, because the political debate in this country makes it so that way you have one party in Congress talking about criminalizing doctors and nurses for caring like women like me. It makes people afraid to talk about pregnancy. It makes people afraid to talk about the hell that is first trimester of pregnancy because we've created the society by design that has made women feel isolated and alone when they go through their experiences. So you mentioned that I used to cover Congress, and that's true. And as someone who used to cover Congress, I know that the words that I put out in the paper or the words that we're having now probably won't move any politicians. However, I'm hopeful that by having this conversation, there are people who listen to your podcast or people who have read this story in The Daily Beast, and they don't feel alone. And I can tell you that since posting this on social media, I've had women who've talked about pregnancies or loss that they experienced as late as 45 years ago that wow. they've carried with them, and they don't talk about it. Because again, like think about how stigmatized it is now, but four decades ago, it was even more so. Um, so to give a little bit of context, cause I can't assume that everyone who's listening to your show has either read my tweets or, um, read this story. I felt like it was really important to speak out against this legislation because I think that as things continue to get worse in terms of economics or in terms of Donald Trump's behavior in the white house, I firmly believe the congressional Republicans will continue to try to bring up legislation like this because they believe that it will resonate with their with their base. And I just want every reporter who covers Congress or who covers politics to think about me because they know me before they consider writing what they're going to write about whatever this legislation is. And what this legislation is, is anti-science, anti-women, and anti-family. Because again, there is no such thing as born alive abortion. And the vast majority of people who would be impacted by this bill are people who are already facing severe trauma and who would be traumatized more or would be prevented from getting honest care from their doctors or their nurses because those doctors or nurses under fear of being imprisoned for five years under this proposed legislation would not be able to give the kind of honest candid feedback that we benefited from and that frankly we benefited from because we live in a state where they haven't put some of these restrictive laws on the books already. I want to get into the messaging side of this and the reporting side of this, because you do address that in the piece. And I imagine while the response from colleagues, former colleagues may have been positive, it may not change just as it won't change the, the legislators. It may not change the coverage you may see in certain places, and that might be disappointing. And I also want to talk about the specifics as I know this isn't your area of expertise, but as much as we can about the specifics of what happened to you and how that relates to what they're talking about in this bill, because it's not a perfect overlap, but I do know that there's there's a lot there. But I, I want to start with a really simple question, which is you, you push this this 
as an open letter to the Republican leader in Congress. At one point, you say, you know me. I, I have seen the two of you walking next to each other in the halls uh, of the Capitol. So have you gotten a response from McCarthy, from anyone on McCarthy's staff or anyone in a position to respond in a formal or human way? No. Um and when you when you asked about why I decided to put this in an open letter to Kevin McCarthy, um, I can tell you and I can take you back to that day, August 11th, when I was in the hospital. Uh, I spent nine hours in a labor and delivery room waiting to deliver a child I knew would never live. Um, and I have to be honest with you that as someone who is really in tune to our political conversation and debate. I thought about the Republican narrative around the doctors and nurses who helped me and who helped us. Because while statistically I know that it is very improbable that you would be in the same position we are, I I point out uh, in the piece that if you've made it to 20 weeks pregnant or past 20 weeks pregnant and you're healthy, only 0.5% of pregnancies will end in fetal demise like mine. But what I can tell you was that I dealt with nurses and doctors who were not only professional and walked me through everything that would happen to my body, but really were um, so sensitive and gentle, I think, in talking to us about what would happen to our minds and to our hearts and how to prepare for something that would be terrible. Because for us, it's hopefully a singular occurrence, but for them, it's not why they get into this business. I think they get into yeah. this business because they want to bring life into the world, but they have been there before and they've dealt with moms and dads and relatives who have suddenly been put in this position where, you know, they're not going to get what they wanted or what they expected and to really coach you through that and to guide you and I thought about Republicans and I thought about this legislation and on that day, to be honest with you, I had told myself that the first Republican of any level of prominence who spoke out in favor of this legislation or who tried to create a phony narrative about the kinds of women or families who would be impacted by it, that I would say something. And I guess I shouldn't have been surprised that it only took a week and it was a Kevin McCarthy tweet. Um, and so he did. And I posted something. And um, then, you know, a few weeks later, as Congress was thinking about getting back in session, as your listeners would know, they came in back into session this week, um, they started touting this hearing. And so he is the head of the House Republican um, caucus, and he has the power to stop them from holding these fake hearings like they're doing or to stop them from offering it on the floor. And so I felt it was my obligation because I had some level of privilege, right? I had the ability to write and I knew that I knew people that if I could write that people would potentially talk about it and that he would at least have to see it. Like today, he got a clips package from his press assistant and he had to potentially read it. Maybe he didn't, but it was there. And I would hope that he did, because I think that we should have a robust enough conversation where people understand that, you know, women like me and families like ours would be impacted by this bill. But I also am really reticent to give them too much attention because I don't want to feed into their energy that would lead them to continue to have this conversation more or to bring too much attention to what they're trying to do. Because again, it's, it's anti-science. So you asked me why I feel like this would apply to me. Um, and so I guess I'll answer that in two parts. One, to tell you a little bit about what happened to me and to share my personal story as I did in this piece, but then two, to look at this bill text and to also sort of break down, putting my old congressional reporter hat, and not a political pundit hat, but <laughs> my old congressional 
reporter hat where I'm looking at a piece of legislation. Like if you want to think about the ideal piece of legislation being written like Encyclopedia Britannica, this bill is written like Yahoo Answers. And it's written like that for a reason. One, as we've discussed, because I don't think that they think that it's actually going to become law. But two, because it's not actually addressing a problem that exists in the real world. And so they have created language, I think, that sort of builds this scenario that doesn't exist because they think that they can energize a particular part of the base while keeping this conversation divorced from reality and divorced from humanity, which, again, is why I think it's important to share my story. And my story is this. Um, I was 22 weeks, six days pregnant. And I think in the days leading up to that morning, I had started feeling some like mild or acute abdominal pain, but I had no idea or no way of knowing that what I was feeling was a contraction. Uh, one, because I've never been pregnant before. This was my first pregnancy. Sure. Um, and two, because my water never broke. Like I'm not going to get too graphic for your listeners <laughs> because like my husband has seen some stuff that he can't unsee. <laughs> So I'm not going to graphically rebuild that for everyone, but my water legitimately never broke. So you can fill in the blank there. Um, and so on sorry. Saturday, yeah, no, you're allowed to laugh. This is what I'm telling you. I know that you you're said you wanted me to laugh, but all I can imagine is, is Josh in this moment where he's also dealing with the agony of this and the, but I know that you were probably trying to make him le- like, just because you're, this is who you are. And, and yeah. I, I, I just, I, I don't envy him trying uh, to, uh, to, to keep your, your sense of humor at bay in this moment. Uh, but uh, I, I'm sorry, I don't want to interrupt. I, I just, oh, no, 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 wait, now that we, we've taken this 22nd time out and you've mentioned Josh, I just want, to say that um, I couldn't be having this conversation with you or with anyone without him. Um, And as I think about the things that make me sad, um, for me, the hardest part is knowing that I have such a clear vision of who he will be as a dad because he's so fierce and so good. And um, that's why... That's why I can have this talk and that's why I can get up every morning. And that's why one day we're going to be really wonderful parents again, because from the second I met him, I knew that he would be. So that's like the hardest part for me. And that's the only part that really makes me emotional. But I wanted to to say that because it's really important to acknowledge that I'm not in this alone. Um, and as I'm on this quest to make other women feel less alone in their pregnancies or in their loss, I also understand that they exist in networks of people, and I hope that they are also lucky to have someone like I have, um, because it's a world-changing experience. So now that that part's out of the way, yeah, um, that's enough about yeah. Now, yeah, now that I've gotten that part out of the way, um, back to that day. So um, (laughs) I had no idea that I was having contractions. In fact, this will be really appreciated by your listeners. I was having what I now know to be contractions at the Iowa State Fair, um, where aforementioned husband, who also, in addition to being a kind-hearted soul, is a very big nerd, was like, well, you know, I've done the whole New Hampshire thing, but I've never been to the Iowa State Fair. And, you know, when you're preparing to be a parent, you go through lots of different thoughts. But one of the thoughts that you might be having now is, oh, well, like, if we don't do this now, like, we're never going to be able to do this again. I've we're definitely had that thought. Yeah. yeah we've our life. So instead of doing something fun, we decided we'd go to the Iowa State Fair. Uh, now, now, to be so fair, we, that is fun yeah. for you and Josh. You just are both weird people. And yeah, know. well, it was also extremely hot and I was pregnant and starting labor. So that part was deeply uncomfortable. Was it um, like a but, butter craving that you had? I mean, was there any pregnancy related no. drive to okay. this? No, 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 no. Okay. First of all, I think the cravings as with many things about pregnancy were made up by a bunch of white dudes who wrote movies in the eighties. Like I never <laughs> felt the need to eat ice cream or pickles. Damn you, John um, Hughes. Uh. Yeah. Uh, no, we, um, we went and the first thing we did, we saw the Everytown Moms Demand 
gotten for him. We woke up at 5.30 on a Saturday morning in Chicago, drove to Des Moines. Um, That was our first stop. And then we did see the butter cow and we saw Amy (laughs) Klobuchar cutting the line with like a Food Network star (laughs) to like talk about the butter cow and Andrew Zimmern. And then we had claimed that she had cut the line and Andrew Zimmern like accused us of fake news on Twitter Mm -hmm. being like they were standing behind the line. I don't know. This was like a really weird way to spend my last day of pregnancy. I think it's appropriate Um, that your child has at least one political scandal, you know, that's yeah. Yeah, I'm gl- I guess I'm glad that that happened. Uh, so, I mean, oh God, I, what a this is going to be a really weird chapter of the book, Jared. I, I mean, that's there's no other way to put it. Um, and so we ended up just getting back in the car that Saturday night um, and going straight home. Mm-hmm. Um, it was like a five hour drive, and I was just deeply uncomfortable that whole drive. And then that night, I probably woke up four or five times in the middle of the night. Um, and then continuing to expose us as the nerds that we are. We set the alarm because we're here in the Midwest in Chicago. Um, CBS Sunday morning starts at 8 a.m. <laughs> so we have a 70, 745 alarm every Sunday so we can make coffee. Because you've got to hear Whitney uh, Marsalis. Unless you actually hear the horn, it doesn't count, right? Yeah. Like that's, that's uh, yeah. Correct. Exactly. Okay. And so I was, I probably woke up at like 645 and I decided I wanted to get out of bed. So I would stop waking up Josh, knowing that his alarm was going to go off in an hour. And like maybe on the couch, I could get myself more comfortable. Like here I am having contractions and I think like an extra pillow on the couch (laughs) is going to really do the trick. And then I internet doctored and I was like looking on the internet and I decided this is why we shouldn't get internet MDs. Uh, that maybe I had a bladder infection. So we drive to the urgent care, the Northwestern urgent care in Lakeview, uh, probably like in the eight o'clock hour. And I go to check in at registration. And that lady is like, no crazy lady. Like, we're not going to check you in. Cause she asked me why I was coming to urgent care. And I said, I'm five months pregnant with abdominal pain. She's like, we're going to go to the emergency room. Uh, so I did, um, and uh, the only like traditional woman in healthcare experience I had was actually in the emergency room because they sent me a lovely nurse from the women's hospital, which is adjacent to the room, the building where the emergency room is. And an attending had to clear me before they would let me like transfer to the utopia that was the women's hospital from the God. emergency room. And he looked at me and he's like, you know, sometimes oh, at your stage of pregnancy women start getting uncomfortable ligament pain because they're getting bigger. (laughs) I was like, okay, dude. And then I looked at this lovely nurse and I was like, please take me away from here. Uh, So we- You're never going to name him, but he is the villain of this part of the story, right? I mean, other than Kevin McCarthy. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Well, so I get rolled to the women's hospital and- um, we are on the triage floor. And at this point, like, I still don't think anything is wrong. Like we paid, I used my phone parking app to get two hours of parking for my car. Cause I was still convinced they were just going to give me like an antibiotic yeah. and send me home. Um, which also I think speaks to my pain tolerance. If I'm going to brag about myself. So, no, I know this is, this is, you know, the, a really sad thing happened to us, but I, I don't want people to like, I, I want people to feel sad for us, but I don't, I don't want them to feel sad because we're doing fine. And I actually feel like having what every time we've had a conversation with a loved one and I would count you as a loved one, um, people leave it feeling a little bit better yes. because they can sense that we're strong and yes. that in turn gives me more strength back. Um, and I'm, so anyway, and I'm very proud of what you're doing with your strength. Thank you. So we are on the triage floor and I'm hooked up to a machine and it's tracking sort of what the contraction activity is, but it's not like any sort of um, screen that I've seen before. So I can't really tell what they're looking at. Sure. And um, the, the uh, attending OBGYN on the triage floor uh, did an exam. And this was when I realized we realized that something was going wrong because I could tell from her face and maybe even with his angle, like Josh probably saw it better first that like something was not right. 
And um, as I wrote in the piece, she let me know that I was having contractions and I was two centimeters dilated. And uh, she talked about the fact that we were going to have to go to the labor and delivery floor and that I would get some counsel from a high-risk OBGYN, but she was really honest with me, which I appreciated. And that was something I think that was a running theme of the day, that people were really honest with me. Uh, and I think that's so important when it comes to medical care. And she said, I, I want you to prepare for the fact that you are probably going to li- deliver this baby today. I don't even think she said probably. She just said deliver. And, and you know at that point that the you know that that means that this is not going to be a successful outcome. Correct. Correct. Because you've been told or because you just know that it's too early. Like what is the level of explicitness? I I know that it's too early. Right. We know that it's too early. Right. When you think about babies who like live under a NICU, like it's a few weeks. It's not, you know, half the time. Correct. Well, and this is, um, and, and I'm. This is the part of this that I've been dreading because, and I, I don't want to try to make this about me, but or us and me and my wife because I do not want to take away from your story at all. But I mentioned this because it could happen to anybody in your situation. You talk about how you know zero point five percent. You know, Katie and I just this week had our. 20 week ultrasound which was and it's so it's so cool right yeah you can see like you can see things now like really clearly and i and and there has not been a day that's gone by since you and i first talked about this to now and and there won't be that i haven't thought about this and 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 when and when we think about this in the larger context of the bill that was put and the hearing and the the showmanship of this this could be anybody there was no reason why this happened to mm-hmm. you it could happen and i feel selfish saying this it could still happen to us god forbid it could happen to us, you know anybody but it could literally happen to anyone. And that is the level of callousness. That is the level of disregard that comes with this bill, this hearing, this idea of messaging. And that's what I want people to remind them as they're hearing you describe what I imagine is the worst day possible, that this is something that could happen to any pregnant person, any couple that are that is dealing with this, and yet there is still the level of callousness that treats it as if it, this entire operation is criminal. Yes. Yes. I mean, this could happen to anyone. And let me tell you, so um, one thing I will say about the the 20-week scan, because it's it's such a cool moment, right? And it's such a, it's such a special experience. We were obviously about three weeks from it. Um, and the thing about the scan was, is that everything that that scan saw in our case was true. Like we had a healthy baby and if you had a scan and you had a healthy baby, you have a healthy baby too. And you're right. There's no, there's no explanation for what happened to me or why my body decided to go into preterm labor labor. And trust me, this drives no one more crazy than my dad, who particularly in the days afterwards really wanted to know of course. why this happened. And we will probably never know. But I do know that the scan was right and that, you know, I was healthy and baby was healthy for that point of gestation. And this is what's really important too, because this goes back to your initial question of did we know what the outcome of that day would be? And the answer was yes. We knew pretty much immediately. And I think as a couple, we had talked a lot about what quality of life would be, for example, um, even before that moment. And when we got up to the labor and delivery floor, I had an amazing team of doctors and nurses. Like I cannot reemphasize enough how incredible the care I, I received was. Um, and we had a high-risk OBGYN. We had an OBGYN uh, from my doctor's practice who was on call and then another attending OBGYN and just the most remarkable and kind and selfless nurses, like just the best, right? 
Um, and we saw the high-risk OBGYN, and he made it really clear that there was nothing that they could do to reverse or even stall my labor, um, which understandably, because it's not like this was the difference between week 29 and week 30, right? Um, what we know about pregnancy is that every single day matters. And so, for example, at the hospital where I was treated, they have a general rule and a standard protocol that I describe in the piece that I wrote that they will not even consider intervention until week 23. Uh, and I was at 22 weeks, six days. And so the high-risk OBGYN talked to pediatricians in the neonatal intensive care unit, and they offered to us to intervene. Even though, again, it wasn't within their standard medical practice, they had decided because we were a day away, they would offer it. But what he had said at the time was, this baby is too young to ever develop normal organs or neurological systems. And what we know from research now and what I included in the piece, because I think it's important, is that the 22nd week of gestation, zero babies in multiple studies ever leave the hospital without major morbidity, and 94% of them die within 120 days. And so there was no way that this child was going to live. It was just too soon. And it was very clear to us in the moment. And again, I write in the piece that presented with the same information, not every couple, not every family would make the same decision. Sure. And I respect that. Um, but the decision for us was really clear because the idea of protracted suffering was not one that sat right with us. Um, and so at that point, you know, what I wanted to focus on, because again, I didn't know what was happening to me. And there were certain scenarios that were laid out to me about how delivery could become more complicated. Um, me walking out of that hospital became the most important thing. And I also feel extremely fortunate to have a medical team where when I stated that, I was heard. And I know for yeah. a fact that that's not the case for every woman. It's especially not the case for women of color in this country. And so that was extremely important too. And again, just one of those results of the conversation we've created around pregnancy. And in fact, like thinking about how I've even told this story to you, I've deliberately not mentioned the hospital where I was treated because one of my fears is that because we are vilifying doctors and nurses yeah. who do this important work, that people who think that they're criminals and people who think that they're villains will do damage to them. That the high-risk floors of hospitals will become the same targets as Planned Parenthoods have become when none of those places should be targets. Those places should be safe spaces for women to get medical care. Could the doctors, you mentioned earlier that the, the doctors and nurses and the medical staff, the hospital that treated you could have been that some of their activities would have been potentially illegal under the bill that was advanced by House Republicans. Can you talk about yes. why, not in the not in an existential why, but like what did they do oh, that would I, have been illegal? And we could talk about the existential oh, why, but okay. what did they do well, that would I have will, been so illegal? Let me read you this line from this legislation, um, section two of this legislation's findings and constitutional authority. The findings. And so this is who this is who the bill applies to. Any infant born alive after an abortion or within a hospital, clinic, or facility has the same claim to the protection of the law that would arise for any newborn or for any person who comes to a hospital, clinic, or other facility for screening and treatment or otherwise becomes a patient within its care. So one of the things that's kind of um, crazy about this legislation is they seem to think that these quote-unquote live birth abortions, which again do not exist and is not a clinical term, happen outside of hospitals, um, which is not the case, right? Uh, well, how would you even keep a they, keep a child alive in those circumstances? I mean, like you just talked about the the impracticality of keeping. I mean, yes. So what we know is that ninety nine percent of abortions in this country happen before the twenty first week of gestation, and what I'm telling you is the research suggests that in its twenty second week of gestation, which I was in, zero babies survive. So they 
want to create this impression that women who reach their 39th week of pregnancy are somehow live birth aborting healthy babies who could live outside the womb, which is just not what science or medicine or the statistics show. Was there right? anyone it's, who referred to any of the procedures that were done to you that day and, and as an abortion? Because you describe in the piece, and you and I have talked about, you had time with your son, not a lot of time, unfortunately, but yes. like nobody was describing this as an abortion. Well, so first of all, this legislation does not define abortion. Great. Second, Good start. Secondly, um, so at my gestational my at my period of gestational development, a woman could either deliver naturally or have a surgical evacuation. In my case, a surgical evacuation was not an option, and so I delivered. However, again, they're just saying any infant born alive after an abortion or within a hospital. So who knows what yeah. they think abortion is, but what they're doing is making everything basically like a case where you would have to force intervention, even though that's not like what medical standards suggest. And in fact, it's outside of the code of medical, medical ethics, um, which we can get to momentarily. But the last piece of my hospital experience or my experience that day that I really wanted to get to and that I think is really important for your listeners to hear when you're thinking about humanizing the kind of person, not only who goes through this experience, but the doctors and nurses who Republicans would like to put in prison is that, you know, after they physically walked me through what a delivery would be, they talked a lot about and counseled us without forcing any decision on us about how to treat the time after I delivered. And they counseled us based on a lot of mental health research that the hospital I had um, been admitted to had done under a grant that was actually run by my physician. Um, and they talked through some of the things that we should consider in order to get closure and to be able to move forward, and especially in order to honor the life of this child who we would really never know. Um, and one of the ways that I've described it, have you ever watched the show The Leftovers with Justin Thoreau? I have not. It's on HBO. Okay. He's very handsome in it. Yes. Uh, very handsome. Um, but the the whole premise of the show is that like 10% of the world's population is suddenly raptured. And the show follows the psychological impact of the survivors I, okay. who will never know like why these humans have just disappeared, who like they were standing in their kitchen one moment and then the next moment they were gone. Gotcha. And so one of the things that was counterintuitive to us, I think, going into it, but was really important in terms of the counsel that we got was that these doctors and nurses, while not telling us that we had to, and while being really respectful that they would honor whatever our wishes were, um, recommended to us that we really spend time with our son. Because like every moment in life, it is fleeting and you never get it back. But in this particular case, it was especially fleeting. And so that was time that we had. And that was time that they encouraged Um you know, I don't think Kevin McCarthy is ever going to want to meet with me, but in a closet in our house, there is a box and it is what I describe in the piece as a memory box, but they offer to do all of the things for this child that um, they would do for a normal healthy birth. So taking little footprints and handprints and the little like tiny hat that I think could probably at this point just be like a weird koozie because it was so small. Um <laughs> <laughs> and and pictures and I I haven't looked at them yet. I don't know if we will or when we will, but that was all something that they encouraged and that was experience that they had and that was something that they did with tremendous care and tremendous respect. Yeah. Um and I don't want this legislation to take that away from this entire profession and this class of people. Um 
and so on that note, and we'll go into a little bit more clinical things, and I'll give you a moment to listen to the clinical things yeah. so you can like stop, you know, feeling like that your just, apartment or your house is getting a little dusty. No, I just somebody literally <laughs> just gave us a hat, and all. I just, I'm sorry. I know that anybody, I know that anybody can feel this, and I'm not trying to. The idea that you would try to criminalize that, or that you would try to police this is so offensive to me, but the, these moments, but but also to try to take away those moments or invalidate that and say that what you did and what you have in that box in your closet is, is wrong somehow. That to me is so, so vile. And I just can't, I can't get over that. Yep. And I'm going to get to back to that emotional point in a second, but what I want to share and what's important is the medical code of ethics because again I can make an I can make an emotional argument I can I can share my story but I want us to make sure that we're also having a medically and scientifically grounded conversation. First of all, how so, dare you? This is Congress. I know. Um, so, in terms of what the medical code of ethics says um, for the treatment decisions for seriously ill newborns, um, it it talks about how difficult this is and it talks about how positions are. Physicians are in a position to help parents, families, and fellow professionals understand, and I'm reading here, so this is a direct quote, that there is no ethical difference between withholding and withdrawing treatment when an intervention no longer helps to achieve the goals of care or promote the quality of life desired for the patient, it is ethically appropriate to draw it. So to help parents formulate goals for their newborn's care, again, this is according to the Code of Medical Ethics, right? and make decisions about life-sustaining treatment on their child's behalf, physicians should A, inform the parents about the available therapeutic options, the nature of available interventions, and their child's expected prognosis with and without treatment, and B, help the parents formulate goals for care that will promote their child's best interests in light of one, the chance that intervention will achieve intended clinical benefit. Two, the risks involved with treatment and non-treatment. Three, the degree to which treatment can be expected to extend life. Four, the pain and discomfort associated with the intervention. And five, the quality of life the child can be expected to have with and without treatment. And so, again, what I want to reinforce is that the physicians and the nurses who helped us checked all of these boxes and given the information that they presented us, we made a choice. Yeah. And earlier when, right before I started reading from this webpage, um, you talked about invalidating and um, that was language actually that I used in the piece. Um, and I thought that maybe this would be a good time to read a little bit about what I wrote. It was a revelation when in my grief, I came to understand that my husband and I are not aspiring parents. We already are parents through our preparation of our hearts for this child and most important, this choice we were able to make for him. I appreciate that not everyone would make the same choice we did. And when faced with the same presentation of facts, those parents should be free to choose what is best for them. What I do not appreciate is the government threatening to interfere with the decisions between a doctor and patient and husband and wife. Every family should benefit from the empathetic, honest, and transparent care from doctors and nurses who are free to act in accordance with the profession's code of ethics and without fear of imprisonment. I cannot and will not remain silent as House Republicans debate this bill because you, through your consideration and promotion of it, you are invalidating my motherhood by attempting to criminalize the very thing that made us parents. It's really difficult for me to talk about this in a way that is detached. And I only wish that for members of Congress who are trying to legislate it, it was similarly difficult to discuss these options in a way that's responsible and in a way that respects the experience that you have described so poignantly for us, both in the piece and in this conversation. I, I, I'm going to ask you one strategic question, and okay. then I'm going to attempt I'm not, to... I'm not a strategi strategist, but I'll try to answer. Yeah, well, I'm going to ask you to put your, your 
whatever hats you uh, currently have on, you know, because in the piece you you acknowledge, I'm I'm also going to try to get away from the emotional side of this because I, I I just I know that you have gotten good at, at this, but I just can't because you and I you are very strong in ways that I am not, and that's fine. In the piece, you acknowledge that this is a messaging bill. You have all the experience as a Capitol Hill reporter to know why that's both significant and insignificant. Why would you give this bill the attention? Because it it was a partisan hearing in a side room. It got almost no coverage outside of friendly conservative media. And the second Google hit for the bill's name is your piece. Why would you, I get why you've talked about why you had to write this, but why give it the oxygen? Why provide an attention to something that, you know, this wasn't segments and segments on cable. This wasn't, why why give it more? So first, um, because I know that this podcast also um, aims to expand the conversation outside the belt, beltway, just a conversation about what a messaging bill is. That's industry jargon for legislation that politicians believe and know will never pass, but they talk about it and they pursue it anyway because they want to score what media ca- like characterizes as points, political points with a base. What we know about this year, and as we get closer to 2020, I think that they're going to try to raise this bill a lot more times. They've already tried to get it on the House floor 80 times unsuccessfully because they're currently the minority party. And you're right. I do think it's a fine line between giving them more attention for this issue versus not. But at the same time, and the point that I tried to make in the piece and the point that I'm making with this conversation, and I'm not going to have so many other conversations like this one is that just the existence of this bill, that they're talking about it, that they're creating an ecosystem and conservative media that promotes this idea that doctors and nurses who work with women or families like mine are evil villains who are trying to kill babies. It's destructive. And the thing that's so shameful is that they're pursuing this legislation knowing that the situation they're trying to remedy is not real, knowing it will never pass, but energizing a group of people who believe in it and they're believing in it earnestly now. And I don't think that we should endanger doctors and nurses like that. We live in a country where Planned Parenthoods need to be constructed with bulletproof glass, where those medical professionals go into those clinics every day, knowing that the vitriolic rhetoric around abortion endangers their lives and they do it anyway. Why would we continue to expand that kind of language and to continue to expand the universe of doctors and nurses who are endangered? And we talked about this before we started recording, but I spent nine hours in that bed on the labor and delivery floor. And I guess we've already well established that I'm a political nerd, but I thought about I thought about this legislation and I thought about the conversation that they had around doctors and nurses. And it's hard to remember because there have been so many scandals. But if you remember back to the comments that they had put everywhere, conservatives had put everywhere that Ralph Northam, the governor of Virginia had made in a radio interview, what he described, if you look back, and they still use that language, exactly describes what we went through. And so when we continue when they continue to have this conversation without someone like me talking about what this means in reality they're able to create a universe that's not real and they're able to create a universe where women are afraid to speak i've seen and heard from so many people who have had experiences that while not identical created a similar level of heartbreak or loss for them And they don't talk about them. They've never talked about them before because it's something that we don't talk about. And so it hurts women and it hurts families and it makes pregnancy, even when it ends well, feel lonely because there are whole parts of it that we don't talk about because the stigma around loss is so real. I mean, again, think back to being pregnant in your first trimester and you're not allowed to tell anyone (laughs) 
because people are so afraid that like you might have a miscarriage and you might disappoint someone or you might be blamed. Meredith, I, and I'm thinking about this in the context of obviously what you're alluding to, which is if that were criminalized, but all I can think of because it's me and because it's you is when you told me that you and Josh were pregnant and I knew that that Katie and I were too, but I didn't say anything because I was scared. And I think about taking someone who is scared like that and trying to make that and try and investigating someone if they lost their kid or investigating a, a mother who had a miscarriage. And I just, I can't imagine. I am glad that you are countering that shame with what is real, what's true and, and what's based in in science and medical ethics and i am am very grateful for the the conversation that we've had today you and i have had a lot of fun ones over the years and i'm i'm glad that we were able to do this one as well because well was, and we'll have fun ones again well and i and frankly i you know i want to mention that you were referencing the leftovers when frankly the avengers endgame is such a more topical reference i don't even know how you're living with yourself at this point given that you were referencing an old tv show versus a movie that was out like within the last you know year so you know well, i i should see more movies, references I okay I, I will try there are attractive men in avengers endgame not just the guy that you mentioned in the leftovers. So I, I'm it's just Justin Theroux and good. That's that's what I look for. Okay, that's good to know. All right. Also, I just want to clarify in defense of this bill that Republicans have drafted, and obviously I'm not defend it. Defending it is they do have a provision that would bar prosecution of the mother of the child born alive. They just want to imprison doctors and nurses. Yes, but, but it's, a, it's a slippery slope and it's not designed to be any sort of bill that's based on logic, reason, reality, or sense. Okay, I'm so, glad you said it so that I didn't have to. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to serve that role. Um, <laughs> I mean, I'm not happy to do it, but uh, I feel like I have to. Well, unfortunately, you are uniquely equipped to serve it. Meredith, um, I, I, there's no good way to, to start this conversation or to end it. So I will just tell you again that, that I care about you deeply. You and Josh. Uh, are are going to again be wonderful parents and you said earlier that he will be uh, a fierce father and i know that you are going to be a fierce mother again oh. so i love you dearly yeah, you're, you're gonna make me cry but i love you all right you, you, meredith shiner is a former and longtime congressional reporter and she's the author of a recent piece in the daily beast that i will make sure is linked here um thank you again for this conversation and for being uh, a wonderful friend Well, thank you, Jared. You're a good friend, too.